This is Addiction Medicine Journal Club. I'm Dr. Sonia Del Tredici. And I'm Dr. John Keenan. We believe that addiction is a disease that can be treated, and we want to help you stay up to date with the latest research that you can use in your addiction medicine practice. This week, we're going to be discussing an article on how prescription opioids influence cognitive function over time in older adults. John, how are you doing this week? I'm great. How about you, Sonia? Anything exciting or on your mind in addiction medicine? Well, I've been meaning to talk about the new CDC prescribing guidelines for a while. I think by the time this episode airs, it'll be the end of December and these guidelines will be old news. But I've been thinking about them and I wanted to see what your take was. I had to read through them in some detail because I wanted to make sure that St. Max's current policies regarding opioid prescribing for our providers was in line with the new guidelines. The final recommendation, though, is particularly relevant to addiction medicine. And it says, so these are the new 2022 opioid prescribing guidelines from the CDC. It says, clinicians should offer or arrange treatment with evidence-based medications to treat patients with opioid use disorder. Detoxification on its own without medications for opioid use disorder is not recommended for opioid use disorder because of increased risks for resumed drug use, overdose, and overdose death. So this is a significant change from the 2016 guidelines. They offered a much softer statement on how to treat opioid use disorder. The 2016 statement was, clinicians should offer or arrange evidence-based treatment, usually medication-assisted treatment with buprenorphine or methadone in combination with behavioral therapies for patients with opioid use disorder. So you can see in the intervening six years, they've dropped the recommendation for behavioral treatments and they specifically counsel against short-term detox. And I think that's a huge change. So what do you think about that? I think that, you know, that's much more progressive in line with the evidence, right? I think they're recognizing that this is a problem that we have to address. I think they're also recognizing that the data at this point is kind of overwhelming that these medications do substantially increase your ability to uh, treat these patients and to produce meaningful outcomes. Yeah, I'm glad they mentioned it. And I think that's a good lead in to our article. You want to get started? Sure. So um, the article I have this month is, is relatively interesting. It's a, called Prescription Opioids and Longitudinal Changes in Cognitive Function in Older Adults. It's a population-based observational study, and it's from the Journal of American Geriatrics from July of 2022. So a little bit of background. Chronic pain is common in older adults with greater than 50% of patients 65 years or greater reporting bothersome pain. And actually, I actually think it's probably even higher than that, at least from kind of my clinical practice. Pain is definitely associated with decreased quality of life, inferior perception of patients regarding their health, and increased healthcare resource utilization. Opioid use for pain is incredibly common, and at any given time, approximately 10% of adults aged 60 plus years of age are using opioids or at least have a prescription for opioids in their possession. We know that single therapeutic doses of opioids cause acute alterations in attention, working memory, and verbal memory in elderly adults. While limited evidence suggests that opioid use may be a risk factor for long-term cognitive impairment in older adults, the current level of evidence is weak and most evidence is based on cognitive screening tools rather than longitudinal assessments. So this study basically sought to answer the clinical questions. There's twofold one. First, is there an association between opioid availability in older adults and accelerated cognitive decline? Second, is there an association between opioid availability in older adults and incidence of mild cognitive impairment? What do you think about that question, Sonia, in, in terms of your practice? 
Well, when I hear that question off the bat, I start to think about confounding medical diseases. You know, I think about the things that cause chronic pain and why an older person might take opioids and the connection between that and cognitive decline. So I worry that someone who's in terrible chronic pain or has a lot of debility and would be more likely to take opioids would also have associated cognitive decline because of overall disease burden. So I would worry about that with the creation of this clinical question. But yeah, I definitely see my older patients, and that's the majority of my patients are elderly. I see them very sensitive to opioids and other sedating medications like epipenoids and sedating antidepressants and sleeping pills, just super duper sensitive. And so I would have no, I would not be surprised at all if they were related to cognitive decline in a clear, statistically significant way. Well, let me tell you a little about the study. So this study, particularly, or at least this this paper, was a secondary analysis of a population-based prospective cohort study. And let me tell you just a little bit about the overarching study from which this data was derived. So this is from the Mayo Clinic Study of Aging. And this is a prospective population-based study examining the epidemiology of cognitive decline and risk of mild cognitive impairment among residents living in Olmstead County, Minnesota. And a little bit about kind of the background. So since 2004 in Olmstead County, residents age 50 plus, they were enumerated using this Rochester Epidemiological Project medical record linkage system in an age and sex stratified random sampling design. So they basically linked everyone in the EMR and stratified them based upon their age and sex to kind of make them the groups relatively similar. At the time of enrollment, the only exclusion is patients that had a diagnosis of terminal illness or who was under hospice care. And from that point of time forward, they did repeated 15-month follow-up evaluations. They had three components. One, a study coordinator did an evaluation. They did risk factor assessment, demographic data collection. They reviewed medications, comorbidities, and new comorbidities that developed since the last assessment, family history, ADLs memory questionnaires, and neuropsychiatric symptoms. The second part of the follow-up involved a neurology evaluation, which had an interview, a mental status exam, and a comprehensive neurological examination. And third, patients underwent formal neuropsychiatric testing, looking at memory, language, visuospatial skills, and executive function. So pretty comprehensive over a long period of time. Very interesting. So this, as I said, is a secondary analysis of that data derived from that study. And so it excluded patients that were less than 65 years of age or who had a diagnosis of dementia at the time of enrollment. So if you had a diagnosis of dementia, you were not included in the end of this study. So right off the bat, anyone with kind of early onset dementia was excluded. Population, there was 4,218 patients, 65 years of age, without a diagnosis of dementia at the time of enrollment. 51% of them were male. The median age was 76. The exposures of interest were, first of all, any post-enrollment opioid prescriptions. And so they did this through the database of the EMR, and they also noted things like route duration, what opioid was actually administered or being prescribed at least, demographic features, smoking status. They did the Charleston Comorbidity Index. They checked for the APOE for allele to see as a marker of kind of uh, accelerated cognitive uh, decline with age and the risk of dementia. Uh, diagnoses of mild cognitive impairment, chronic pain diagnoses, also within 12 months of enrollment if that diagnosis was present. 
They also looked at things like antidepressant medication use with depression being an independent risk factor for cognitive decline and benzodiazepine use. Any questions about kind of what they looked at in this in this study or with the secondary analysis, Sonia? No, but it's a really great question. I mean, I've become used to addiction medicine research, which always seems to be missing huge swaths of data. And I'm really glad to read a study where they have true objective interviews and objective clinical exams that are recorded on all the patients, along with demographic data and prescribing data. You know, I'm just, I'm looking forward to see what they find because I feel like the data they collected is really high quality. Yeah, so kind of transition well to validity of this trial. So just a little bit, there's really kind of not industry bias. The study was funded by research grants from the National Institute of Aging and through the Mayo Clinic Robert D. and Patricia E. Kern Center for Science of Healthcare Delivery. I like that the fact that it had a relatively large population size. Well, it did have a large population size of 4,218 participants. Efforts was placed both randomly selecting and matching participants using this kind of very interesting kind of Rochester Epidemiological Project medical record linkage system like we talked about before, which also stratified everyone on age and sex to produce some random sampling. It was good follow-up with a median follow-up of participants of 7.5 years. So that's, that's really good for most of the studies that we have talked about here in the past. All modeling was adjusted for baseline covariance, and they also did covariance by time. So if something changed by time, it also factored in like a secondary analysis uh, item. It's observational only, so it's possible chicken or the egg phenomenon between prescribing opioids for pain and cognitive impairment. I, I think that that's probably the area where I, I think it's probably the the biggest question I'll have at the end is, is how well can you really match those participants that received opioids since there's probably something else going on that's leading to that prescription. It's unable to obtain data regarding pain, etiology, severity, and functional pain limitations of participants. And by that, I mean that you would think that at least kind of it would make sense that patients that have more opioid prescriptions in their possession probably have more severe uh, functional limitations, which could also cause accelerated cognitive decline. A big assumption was made that opioid availability applied opioid use and vice versa. Lack of opioid availability implied lack of opioid use. I think we know that a lot of grandmoms and grandpas, their medicine cabinet has unused bottles of oxycodone and hydrocodone in it. That's a source of exposure for a lot of younger patients that develop substance use disorder. Also, just because you're over 65 does not mean that you do not use illicit opioids or have obtained them from illicit sources. I have many patients in that age group as well that I treat for a substance use disorder. So it, it kind of doesn't really account for those two. It's not a randomized controlled trial, so it's only an association can be assumed by this. What do you think, Son? you think it's valid? Yeah, I mean, I think it is valid. I, I think the point that opioid prescription does not equal opioid use is especially important, especially since this isn't, if I'm correct, this isn't necessarily long-term chronic opioid prescriptions. This is any opioid, right? This is just exposure. They do look at kind of number of exposures as kind of one of the analysis subtypes, but it's not necessarily insinuating chronic opioid use. Right, because it could include all kinds of people. And especially a few years ago, you would get some surgery and you'd come home with 30 days worth of opioids and you'd take like three pills, you know, and like you said, you have it sitting in your medicine cabinet. So I think that does, you know, make the results a little bit less valid. But overall, I thought it was pretty good. Yeah. So what are the results? Um, just some like demographic and baseline information about the groups. 
So 2,977 subjects, that's 71% of participants in this, received at least one opioid prescription during a median follow-up of 7.5 years. So most people received at least one, 7.5 years, very long follow-up time. Patients prescribed opioids during the study period had higher prevalence of chronic pain diagnosis. So people that received opioids, 34% versus 18% had a diagnosis of chronic pain. They had higher Charleston comorbidity indexes of three versus two. They had fewer years of educational training. So 32% versus 40% of participants had the 16 plus years of education that would be consistent with higher education. So people with less education more likely to be prescribed opioids at least, not necessarily take them. Higher rates of opioid prescription than a year preceding enrollment. So 25% participants receiving opioids received them also a year prior to the study versus 13% that didn't. They had higher Beck depression and anxiety scores, four versus three and two versus one. So really kind of reflects, I think, what we see kind of with most patients kind of receiving opioids for chronic pain as well, even though this wasn't a study of chronic pain, you know, basically higher comorbidities, more chronic pain, less education, and then also higher rates of depression and anxiety all correlated with opioid ex- or, or at least exposure of in this study. Not su- unsurprisingly, oxycodone and tramadol were the most prescribed of all opioids in the study. Each of them was accounted for 30%. So a total of 60% of opioids came either from the oxycodone or tramadol subgroup. And I think that reflects uh, probably national prescribing as well. Tramadol often considered, quote, the safe opioid, very commonly prescribed for chronic pain. And oxycodone, often kind of driven by low-cost insurances, often kind of dictate that as a chronic pain medication. of prescriptions were associated with a hospitalization. 10% of prescriptions were associated with a surgery. The median daily morphine equivalent was 60. The median prescription duration was 13 days. So kind of interesting kind of baseline features there. What they were really looking at in the study was cognitive changes and cognitive impairment. So in terms of the first variable, they're looking at cognitive changes. So in this analysis, 3,982 participants were included. They did global cognitive Z-scores, declined in all participants over time at a rate of negative 0.096 standard deviations per year. So there's a slight decline in everyone over age 65, which that sounds relatively consistent with what all of us know about just healthy aging in general. Each opioid prescription was associated with a statistically significant decline in global cognitive Z-score of negative 0.007 standard deviations with a p-value of less than 0.001. So while all aging did result in decline, every opioid prescription had a very slight but statistically significant additional decline in global cognitive Z-scores. When they looked at the subdomains, memory, attention, and language were all affected in statistically significant ranges, with memory being the most affected at 0.005 standard deviations, attention being 0.004, and language being 0.02 for each opioid prescription. So memory, attention, language in that order in terms of effect. Visual spatial was actually not affected by opioid prescriptions in this study, so at least not statistically. Does that surprise you, Sonia, at all? Well, it doesn't surprise me, but I do wonder about the biologic plausibility. And I also really feel like the opioid prescribing is kind of binary. I feel like, or at least maybe it is now, or maybe in my practice, either you get super short-term opiates after a surgery or an acute injury, a week, 
three days, something really short term. And in this study, I think you said the median prescription was for 13 days. So you get this very short term and then you get a smaller subset of people who are on them chronically forever. And there's not a lot of people kind of in the middle, at least in my practice. And so I really feel like, and then if you average them, you know, you average all the people who took it for a week, which is most people with all the people who take it for like 10 years, you'll get some average in the middle, but it won't really reflect average use. And so I, I just worry a little bit about mixing all of these different types of opioid uses together, because I don't understand what the biologic mechanism is for taking, you know, three days of oxycodone for a kidney stone and like cognitive impairment seven years later. Yeah. And so the second one they looked at was incidence of cognitive impairment. And so this had fewer participants. So it was only 2,963 participants were included. And that's because 26% of patients developed mild cognitive impairment during follow-up. So there was a large group that just developed cognitive impairment. So they had to be excluded, or at least they had it during the baseline. So we couldn't determine what was actually developed during the exposure period. So prior receipt of an opioid during follow-up was associated with an increased hazard of mild cognitive impairment with a hazard ratio of 1.29, and this was statistically significant. And when it was adjusted for multivariable analysis, so kind of looking at all the other confounding variables, the hazard ratio was slightly, was still increased, not as much as it was before at 1.21. So a slight increase, and that was statistically significant. They had a really cool graph in there. I wish I could kind of somehow talk out the graph for everyone, but it kind of showed basically, it kind of modeled patients at different baselines in terms of their cognitive impairment or over a period of time and, and how they developed with then repeated exposure. So people that were doing really well from a cognitive standpoint, what did their cognitive decline look like with one, two, three, four opioid prescriptions over a two-year period versus someone that was not really great in terms of cognition, how they aged with exposure. And, and clearly, you know, if you have less reserve, you really kind of were more likely to cross over into a more severe cognitive impairment domain. Also, that dose response result where the more opiates you got led to greater cognitive decline does enhance the validity of the hypothesis that opioids might be related to cognitive decline. So I, it was interesting to see that. I guess kind of a, the last question is like, how does this going to help me in, in patient care or will it help me in patient care? And I really like this study. I think it's it's a great, most of kind of what I do with patients in, in primary care is we talk about risk benefits of treatment, risk benefits of inter, any intervention. And, you know, I, I often found it kind of like flattering. It's, it's not uncommon for a patient to see another physician and, who's recommending a treatment or a procedure and a patient to schedule an appointment with me to discuss whether or not they should do what the other doctor said. So they do ask me to kind of give them counseling. And, and I, oftentimes the other doctor has many more diplomas and certificates than me. So I, it is flattering that they trust my opinion. So this is useful to at least have a discussion about it. You know, elderly patients come in all the time. Unfortunately, pain as a complaint is often a very common issue, both acute and chronic. And, you know, I always tell them that we only really have like three flavors of pain medication for the most part. It's, it's Tylenol, opioids, and NSAIDs. Maybe you can add anticonvulsants and TCAs in there as well, but not many different kind of targets for us to use. And especially as you get older with multiple medical comorbidities, the, the selection becomes very limited in, in many of these patients. So I think they often want to have a discussion about you know, what they can, they can do. Counseling about risk of death to elderly patients often isn't very well received in terms of that they care that much. I'll tell you, if I had an 88-year-old, 89-year-old 
with their benzodiazepines as a new patient taking their Xanax four or five times a day. They, they just don't care about that. But if I tell them that they are likely to become demented or have cognitive decline, that actually is a very patient-centric outcome, and they do care very much about that. So I think it's useful information. Like I said, this was very, it was statistically significant association, but it was slight. So I think it's not something that I'm going to change what I do. I'm not going to start weaning opioids on, on my elderly patients if the indication is appropriate. But I think it's it's a good thing for them to be counseled about as we go through with the prescription and we reassess the risk and benefit of it. How about you, Sonia? You think you're going to be using this information in your clinical practice? Yeah. I mean, I'm glad that it confirmed what I suspected which is that opioids could contribute to cognitive decline. Again, the result, the magnitude of the result wasn't huge. So it's not going to make or break anybody's decision, but I think it's a contributing factor. And I do think we do a poor job of counseling on risks and benefits of medication, especially medications that are super addictive and likely to become chronic. You know, my practice is a teaching practice. So all of us only see patients half time. So we see a lot of each other's patients. You know, if someone's attending is precepting, then I might see one of their patients. And I'll tell patients, oh, you know, did you know that the Xanax causes blah, blah, blah? Or, you know, I worry about opioids because they're related to falls and cognitive decline. And the patients will be like, oh my gosh, no one ever told me that. You know, and I don't know if that's really true. They're at PCP might've told them that. But I just think we get into a bit of a therapeutic inertia with our chronic patients and we forget to tell them that there are risks of things that we do. And so it just it's a reminder to me that I should be talking with my patients about the risks of medicines that are likely to become chronic. But it's not going to make me like not give someone a short term course of opiates for severe pain, you know, if something comes up. I think it's still a valid like chicken or the egg phenomenon for the patients that got these prescriptions. I think of my own practice and I often feel that patients that are older that get opioids for me for pain, it's often due to substantial medical comorbidities that limit me from using the other options. So I, I feel like it's hard to kind of tease that. I know they tried really w- well in this article to do that, but I think that that's probably what a, a lot of us end up doing. We end up using the opioids because they, they're relatively safe in renal or hepatic dysfunction. If you dose them appropriately, they don't have risk of falls or anticholinergic side effects. It's just really tough. I feel like you kind of reach into that toolbox to grab that one out for for pain, often due to a lack of other options. Well, I think that's the problem with prescribing opioids. And it's a problem I haven't been able to think my way around, which is the patients who are most vulnerable to adverse effects from opioids, like they have already some cognitive decline or they have mood disorders and depression. They have debility. They have risk of falls because of severe osteoarthritis. Those are the people who have more pain as well and are unable to take advantage of the other modalities that might help them. So the people who could benefit more from the opioids are also the people who have greatest risk from the opioids. And that makes prescribing more complicated. Well, thank you for presenting that article, John. That was really awesome. I did want to say one thing for our listeners, which is I just want to encourage you, if you're listening, to share this podcast with friends or colleagues. We've just been so thrilled with the response the podcast has gotten. We have a lot of listeners. We've gotten a lot of comments. I really enjoy talking to people online and people who've commented on the podcast. So I want to encourage you to share it with your friends and we'd love to get even more people involved. 
And that said, thank you for listening to the Addiction Medicine Journal Club. The best part of any journal club is the conversation, and we really want to hear what you have to say. So to have your opinions about our articles included in a future episode, you can email us at addictionmedicinejournalclub at gmail.com or talk to us on Twitter or Facebook at AddictionMedJC. Our original theme music was composed and performed by Benjamin Kennedy. Our audio editing is by Angela Olfest. Addiction Medicine Journal Club is intended for educational purposes only and should not be considered medical advice. The views expressed here are our own and do not necessarily represent those of our employers or the authors of the articles we review. All patient information has been modified to protect their identities. Thank you for being part of the conversation. Have a great day.